0: The uh, scripture this morning comes from Colossians 3, and we're going to read, just to give some context, starting in verse 12, uh, the sermons on passages 15, uh, verses 15 through 17. If you want to look in your pew Bible, uh, the Bible in front of you in the pew, it's uh, on page 984. You'll be helped if you can look along. Uh, So let's uh, take a minute to find and then stand for the reading of God's word. Starting in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive and above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15 and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You may be seated. We'll take a moment to reflect on God's word together. So, uh, for the last uh, weeks, uh, months, we've been going through uh, the book of Colossians. We took a little break during Easter. Um, And we've been going through, and Paul's been talking first about Christ, then he's been talking about how to kind of uh, live out the truth of the gospel. And the section that we're in right now is where Paul is uh, teaching the church in Colossae how to put on the new life that Christ has bought for them. And so, uh, and if you'll notice, when you look through this verse, the the phrase be thankful or thankfulness just kind of permeates everything. And it feels like Paul, the writer of the letter to this little church in Colossae, is just trying to drive home this concept of thankfulness. So I found this uh, interesting story about the old uh, Puritan preacher Matthew, Matthew Henry about thankfulness. I thought it was interesting. So one day, Matthew Henry... This preacher, this pastor, uh, this writer, one day he was on his way home and he got robbed. So he was robbed by someone on the street and all his money was taken from him. And the story goes that later in his journal, Matthew Henry's reflecting on this event and he's kind of reflecting on it in the light of the gospel. And he decides to thank God. And so he writes the following about being robbed. God, I thank thee first because I was never robbed before. So that's good. Second, because although they took my purse, they did not take my life. So that's good. I can be thankful for that. Third, because although they took everything I had, I didn't have that much. So that's good. And fourth, because it was I who was robbed and not not I who robbed. So I'm, I'm thankful that I'm not a robber. It's better to be a person who gets robbed than to be a guy who robs people. And so I think we could see, at least from this story, that the gospel perspective on someone's life, holding your circumstances up to the light of the gospel, makes a huge difference. And uh, that a perspective focused on God, based in thankfulness, can transform and season even the worst circumstances. And so here in this short little passage, Paul is trying to give this church in Colossae that's meeting in the sky uh, Philemon's house... A perspective of thankfulness to transform their community and their situations. And he's saying gratitude should be the thing that seasons everything that you do when you're together. It's, it's the, the last thing that I, that I want to tell you uh, uh, when you're putting on the new self. Be grateful. Uh, be thankful. And uh, all these people are coming out of a, a history of a life of being Self-saviors and expert sinners. And they're just recently learning the message of Jesus. And they're just recently becoming part of this church. And so he's saying, hey, you're going to put off all these old ways of doing things. And over everything else, I want you to put on love and then be thankful. So he's reminding them, be thankful all the time. Be a community grounded in gratitude. And the way I'm looking at these little verses through 15 through 17 is is that Paul's assuming that this little church with all the the habits that they've learned, all the ways of relating to people that they've kind of picked up throughout their life, you throw all these expert sinners in a room together, there's going to be some trouble, right? And you've got people from all these different walks of life, these different cultural backgrounds, these different opinions about how you should eat and how you should dress. And plus, you've got all this pressure from false teachers coming in trying to twist the truth of the gospel. He's saying these people are going to be in a lot of trouble if they don't remember the gospel. And one way to remember if they've really gotten the gospel is are they thankful? And so Paul's going to give us three phrases that are going to help us remember to be thankful when we meet together. And I'm thinking about the, you know, the Colossian church, you know, kind of in their old selves in the darkness of who they used to be. It's like a they're meeting together and it's like in their in their old lives if they just met together like they're used to like they're used to operating it would be like a dark room like a dark stuffy room and paul's saying i'm going to shed some light on that so i'm going to open up three big windows to let thankfulness just kind of shine in on the situation and you can see each of the windows their word pictures in each of the uh verses the three windows are the peace of christ the word of Christ. And the name of Christ. So let's look at those. The peace of Christ in verse 15. This is what it says Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And Paul's saying that the peace of Christ is not just a feeling that we have, like, oh, I feel at peace in my heart, but it's a positive force. It's, it's a cosmic end to conflict between creature and creator. Because it says earlier in, verse, uh, in chapter 1 verse 20 that through Christ God reconciled everything to himself whether on heaven or earth making peace by the blood of his cross. So the peace that Paul's talking about isn't just a feeling of peacefulness inside your heart. But it's a new standing that you have where you're not at war with God anymore. And that was bought by the blood of Jesus and this is—it's an individual reality, certainly that you yourself, as an individual, aren't at war with God anymore. But like about just about everything that Paul is talking about here, it has this inward, individual expression, this inward individual reality, but then a corporate expression. And so what Paul is saying is that just between you and God, your debts have been settled. You're you're cool with God. You've been adopted. You have a new relationship. But you don't just have a new relationship to God. You have also an, have a new relationship to other people. You have a new relationship to all the Christians in the world. You've been adopted into God's family, so you have new brothers and sisters. And the way I'm thinking about this is that you've been called out from the world as part of a set. And what I mean by that is our son Gus, he's just re- I don't know if you know this, but Ninja Turtles are cool again. And so our three-year-old son has found out that Ninja Turtles are cool from his uh, older friends. And the Ninja Turtles, as you know, they're brothers, and there's four of them. So they kind of are a set of brothers. There's four of them. And so we, he's been really keen on like, trying to get all the Ninja Turtles, so he gets the set. So when you get a new Ninja Turtle, a new brother, he comes in and he's bought as part of the set. He belongs as part of the set. And so in the same way, as a Christian, you've been bought And you've been brought into the family as part of a set. And when God looks at you and when God deals with you, Gus doesn't just take out one Ninja Turtle at a time. He he gets them all and he says, these are all my Ninja Turtles. And he plays with the set. When God thinks of you, he's thinking about you as part of a set. As part of a group. You belong to each other. You belong to God. You belong with each other. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about this concept. We've been chosen and accepted with the whole church. We belong to him in eternity with each other. And he who looks upon his Christian brother or sister should know that he will be eternally united with them in Jesus Christ. So look to the right or to the left. You're going to be with these people for eternity in Jesus and you can really see this. Um, it's hard for us when we read this passage because we don't really see it in English. But, you, but all the you's that Paul uses when he says, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. That's not just a you. That's a, that's a y'all. It's a plural. Or if you're from the north, it's a you's Guys. So what Paul is saying is, uh, let the peace of Christ rule in y'all's hearts, to which indeed y'all were called in one body. And hey, y'all be thankful. He said it's for you all to do this together. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. Isn't that neat? It's not just about me and God. It's about me and the people that God has called me to be a part of. And here when he's talking about the one body, he doesn't just mean you've been called into the universal invisible church like we were praying about the Christians in Romania or people across the world. He's saying, yeah, you're a member of that bigger invisible body. But right here he's talking about. These people in the room next to you, the people that you see and the people that you actually uh, have to exercise patience and self-control and compassion, the people that you actually have to bear with on a weekly or daily basis. And when Paul says, when you get together, the peace of Christ, when you get together in this body, when you gather as part of this set, peace is supposed to rule. And the Greek word rule is the same word that's used for like an umpire or a referee in athletic games. So Paul's saying when you get together, the thing that kind of says what's in and what's out, the thing that kind of arbitrates everything and settles your disagreements is the rule of peace. And this concept of peace should cover everything. All your different opinions about how to raise children, about how to operate in the world, about how to dress, about what to eat. Peace should rule all of that. And again, this concept of peace, it isn't just we're going to agree not to fight. Peace is it's this amazing concept that you see throughout the whole Bible and the Jewish word. For peace in the Old Testament is shalom. It's just a beautiful word. And what Paul means, Paul, the Jewish teacher, is talking about the peace of Christ. He's talking about this shalom, which is this positive force that comes from God that moves and knits everything together. If something's in shalom, it means it's standing in right relationship with everything else, that it's being woven together as part of a bigger unity. So to give you an example, the carpet, a bunch of threads thrown together. No, the the carpet isn't a bunch of threads just thrown together on top of one another. The carpet is a bunch of threads. Some are different colors, some are different strengths, and they kind of are all woven together to make something beautiful. And when we as Christians gather together in peace, in shalom, God is weaving you together. So our differences make the whole unity of everything else look that much more beautiful. And so what God is saying is, is when the peace is ruling, he's, he's, he's knitting you together with people that are different than you. He's knitting you together with people that are of different maturity levels than you are. He's knitting you together to be a part of this bigger community. So when you come together, you're not just a bunch of threads thrown together in a pile and then you go and leave. When you come together, you're being woven together into something that's bigger and more beautiful than the sum of its parts. Something that brings glory to our maker. The hand of the artist that brings glory to him. And so Paul is saying with this image of the peace of Christ ruling, you're called to peace in one body. He's saying, look around. This is your body. The brothers and sisters to your right and your left, that's your body. And uh, it's hard for us to accept this in our culture sometimes, but a, a body that you've been given you don't have a lot of choice about it. I mean, there's some wiggle room, but for the most part, you got the body that you got, and it's not getting any better as you get older. <laughs> you know, so I, for example, I can't see anything without these glasses. I, I can't really control the eyes that I've been given, and surgery might help a little bit, but for the most part, I, I really can't see anything without my glasses. And I got that from my father because he has horrible sight, too. So, you know, my eyes are getting worse and worse as I get older. Our physical bodies are deteriorating more and more, but the body of Christ is different. The body of Christ, as it meets together, as we progress walking with Jesus, it doesn't get worse and worse. We get better and better. We go from glory to glory as, as your rough edges are getting shaved off by meeting together. You stick around here and the peace of Christ rules and you get woven together with people for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. You're going to leave this body better than when you started. That's the hope. The hope is you come in here and you might be young, you might be immature and, and you might be kind of a jerk maybe. Or you might be kind of timid or you might be kind of prideful. And the hope is that 30, 40, 50 years of being woven together with a piece of Christ ruling you, you're not going to be so much of a jerk anymore. You're not going to be so timid. You're not going to be so prideful. That's the goal. That's what we can expect because we're not just meeting here in isolation. The hand of God is moving and shaping us as we meet together. And that's something to be thankful for. So that's the first image that. The peace of Christ should rule us and knit us together and shape us. Number two, the word of Christ in Christ in verse 16. So Paul's already established that, that God is weaving them together with one another. And now he's getting a little more specific. You might be saying, Sam, that's a beautiful idea. That's kind of a pretty picture. God is knitting us together. But I didn't come here for knitting class. And I don't see I mean, that. That just seems a little strange. Um, how practically do we make that happen? How does this heart attitude of peace, how does it find expression when we meet together? And Paul says it happens through the ministry of the word of Christ. Here's what it says in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Notice that Paul says when we gather together, when this church gathers together, they're gathering around something. And what they're gathering around is not the word of man. And it's not even a word from a man. It's the word of Christ. The main thing in church is God's word. And this is in contrast to a word from Christ. Like some teacher comes up to the front of the room and he says, hey, I've got a word from God for you. No, the word from God for us is the word of God. It's the message about Jesus. So when Christians gather to worship around the word of Christ, we're not gathering around the words of a preacher or a skilled teacher or even the words of a songwriter. And you might be asking, well, what's the word of Christ? If you've got another translation, it might say something different. The NIV uh, translated it as the message of Christ. And the reason that's different is because is here what Paul says when he means the word of Christ, he doesn't just mean the Bible. He doesn't just mean Scripture, although Scripture's a part of what he means. He doesn't just mean the teachings of Jesus, like we would think about the moral teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. What Paul means when he says the word of Christ is he means the message about Jesus, the whole gospel story. And you can see this in uh, chapter 1-7. Paul uses that same phrase, the word of uh, of uh, to mean the the word of the truth. And that's the, th- the message about Jesus that the, this little church in Colossae learned from their teacher, Epaphras. So it's the whole counsel of God. It's the story about who Jesus is and what he's done. It's about creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And I think the application for us here is we can pick words from the Bible to pray and preach. And we can even sing songs... With words from scripture, but we won't be hearing and learning and singing the word of Christ because you can pick words out of the Bible and not really do justice to the whole uh, scope of what the Bible's saying. Let me give you an example. If you're familiar with the, uh, the the movie Finding Nemo, a lot of people have seen that movie, especially young people are like, you're sitting up now. So Finding Nemo, you guys know it. OK, so it's a story about a fish. And the fish gets picked up by a boat, and then the fish uh, lives in a tank in a dentist's office. That's the story, right? No, see, that's not the whole story. That happens in the story. Those are words from the story. That's part of the story. But the whole story of Finding Nemo is that there's a father and a son, and they live together. And this son means so much to the father because he's all he has left. And then the son gets taken away from the father. And yes, he gets picked up by a fishing boat and he gets put in a dentist's office. But what the father does is he goes all across creation to find his son. And then he gets his son back. And At the end of the story, the father and the son are reunited. See how much difference the, the context makes the whole story? So you can pick out words from the Bible, but it's not really the word of the Bible. It's not really the message of the Bible. So let's focus on that. He's saying the whole council, the story of the gospel is supposed to dwell in you richly. And when Paul says dwell in you richly, I love that. It means it's supposed to be uh, extravagantly, lavishly present with us, it's supposed to bear fruit in your hearts. What I think he's saying is that our time in front of the story of the gospel, it shapes us and it forms us and it creates us into a certain type of people. Um, who love different things now, because of being exposed to the message of Jesus, being exposed to the story of the gospel. And uh, Christ, as we meet together and we hear the story, he comes, he becomes bigger and more beautiful to us. So, how exactly does that happen? Uh, in the ESV, it's a little, it's a little awkward. Um, it doesn't necessarily uh, make it as clear. As the NIV does, and this is what I think Paul's trying to say, is that one way that the word of Christ gets to dwell in you richly is it says that it happens, this is what the NIV says, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So part of the way we get formed and shaped is through singing. Singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul saying that's how it dwells deep within you. That's how it dwells richly. And I think what God is saying is he wants us to learn this story. He wants us to learn the story of the gospel, the whole story, not just, you know, the good parts, but all of it, because it's all a good part. And he wants us to teach it to each other, teach it to our children, our children's children. And he really wants us to get the story right. So he has given us these wonderful means of pounding the story into our hearts. And this is how the word of God, the story of Christ, is proclaimed to us when we meet together. It, usually it's by three ways. By the preaching of God's word, by the sacraments, and by singing. And there's a lot of other stuff that happened together. But the way the story gets told mainly is by preaching, by the sacraments, and by singing. And it's obvious how you know, we hear the gospel in a certain way when people preach from the Bible. But then also in sacraments, in baptism, when you see someone baptized, when, you, when we enjoy the Lord's Supper together, the story of the gospel is kind of acted out in front of us. And that's another way that it dwells in us richly. And here what Paul is talking about is a specific way um, that the, the word of Christ dwells in us. It's, it's by singing together. The act, the, uh, what Keith Getty calls the, the holy act of congregational singing. And, and this... This way of teaching, it works a little more subtly than the other two. And and what happens is uh, when you're singing good, solid, biblical songs that preach the gospel story, the truth kind of affects you from within. This is what William Cooper, an old hymn writer, said. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. And it is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. What he means is sometimes when we get together to sing... You're singing these words of these songs, and then all of a sudden, it's like God shines a light in your heart. And you go, I think I actually mean what I'm singing now. I think this, these words that I was used to singing aren't just familiar. They, they've become beautiful to me. Christ is becoming beautiful to me. And I have a new perspective. and, and you start. Th- it, it's what happens when you're singing, and you go, I really need to repent of that. I really need to ask for forgiveness for that. I really need to, I, I really need to reread this passage in the Bible. Um, it, it's something that happens. And, and I think God, God knows how our minds work. He, he gave us minds. He gave us bodies. He gave you voices and ears that love music and can understand it and hear it and respond to it. And so God knew what he was doing when he gave us music. He's not surprised by its power. And so what Paul's saying is is our teaching, our singing, uh, should have the effect of teaching and admonishing one another. Uh, So the word of Christ at work in us through corporate singing does the same thing that Paul said that he's trying to do in the beginning of his letter. In verse 28 in chapter 1, he says, I'm trying to teach and correct you. And that word correct or warn is the same as admonish. So the singing of songs together should teach us and should also kind of warn us. And uh, we say this when we when we get together a lot. I know I've said it when I've led worship here that when we gather, God is the audience. But what Paul's saying here is, yeah, God's the primary audience of our worship, but there's a secondary audience too. it's each other. When you sing together, we're kind of we're singing to God, but we're also singing for each other. It's good for me to hear other Christians around me sing. Because it teaches me, it warns me, it corrects me, it shapes me, and said, and so um, I, I think it 's just so beautiful. this is part of God weaving us and knitting us together now, for our singing to really do what God intends to teach us and warn us and correct us uh, there 's a couple things that I think need to happen, and we uh, you know working on the worship here at church we've we 've tried to think about these things because um, we, we want to to be obedient to what the Bible says, that our singing together should do something for us. It should leave us differently uh, than it finds us. So uh, first, we're going to really need to sing substantial songs. I think that's part of what he means by singing in all wisdom. You don't want to sing unwise songs Um, and songs that tell the full story about Jesus. Uh, uh, Theologian Marva Don said this, shallow music makes shallow people. And I think that's really true. That's true inside the church's worship, and that's true outside the church, too. And number two, we need to sing songs that can actually correct and teach us. Uh, there's songs that, that might stretch us a little bit, that might confuse us at first. Songs that warn us, if we, if we want to translate admonish that way. So at least, at the very least, we need to know that, that the whole story of Christian music that we sing together, it, it, it isn't always positive and encouraging. Sometimes it might be warning and convicting. And so this list, he says, psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. um, People kind of differ on on what that means. Uh, Some people think it might refer to all of the different types of psalms. And some people think uh, that word hymns could refer to something like uh, the poem about Jesus in Philippians 2 uh, that Paul records. But I think at least what we're talking about here is uh, that at least there's going to be a variety of types of singing. There's going to be a variety of songs. So variety for us as a church is a good thing, according to Paul. And number four, I think we're going to have to fill our hearts. Just pack them with good, wholesome, soul-nourishing songs. I'm sure you've heard of this before, how um, oftentimes people who suffer from Alzheimer's, um, they can't remember a lot of ordinary uh, facts about their life but they can recall hymns and songs that they learned as a child. And that's because uh, singing, songs, music, works on a different part of the brain than just bare facts. And we're called to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So I think part of loving God with our whole mind means loving God with the part of the brain that sings and remembers songs. So that when we've forgotten everything else, the stuff that comes out of you, The stuff that's stored up is good, rich, true, soul-nourishing songs. And so for us, here's just a quick application. What songs are bumping around in your brain? What songs are are lodged back there? What tunes are back there? Uh, If you forgot everything else, are you going to remember some songs that are going to remind you of Jesus? And as someone who loves music... I, I, I need to, this. This is convicting for me that I need to take time to fill myself and feed myself with really good music because there's a lot of junk food, and there's a lot of there's even a lot of Christian junk food. So let's fill ourselves with real, true, good, wholesome, solid songs. Amen. So what would this look like? And and I'm thinking if if we're talking about the formative power of singing and worshiping together, I think Paul's envisioning that as we get together and sing, it's going to make us a certain type of people. It's going to make us a thankful people. And uh, there's this wonderful, wonderful story about a man named uh, Valklav Havel. I'm probably not saying his name right, but he was a playwright in the Czech Republic under communism. And he was a part of this revolution that overthrew communism. Without firing a a single shot. It was this nonviolent revolution where they overthrew communism. And an interviewer was asking him uh, how they overthrew the communist regime regime, and without firing a single shot or, or, or actually fighting. And this is what he said. This playwright. He said, well, we just had our parallel society. And in that parallel society, we wrote our plays and we sang our songs and we read our poems until we knew the truth so well that we could go out into the streets of Prague and say, We don't believe your lies anymore. And communism had to fall. Isn't that beautiful? So as Christians, we gather to sing our songs, hear the word preached, participate in the sacraments to make Jesus bigger and more beautiful to us so that we can know the truth so well that we go out into the world and we can say, we don't believe your lies anymore. And we can look at our own hearts and we can say, heart, I don't believe your lies anymore. I believe the truth of the word of God. Amen. That should make us grateful. And lastly, the name of Christ. And this is the picture. This is the window that Paul opens up that there is just treasure here for us to reflect on. And this is the one that this is the concept I think really just sums up and controls everything else. Um, He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he's saying, whatever you do in word or deed, and and a lot of times when you hear uh, something like in word or deed in the Bible, uh, he's not just saying when you speak words or when you do deeds, you know, do it in the name of Jesus. It's like in the Bible when it says that God is the God of heaven and earth. It means that God's of the God of both heaven and earth, but everything in between heaven and earth too. So Paul's not just saying, hey, when you speak or when you do actions, do it in the name of Jesus. He's saying everything you do from A to Z, from word to deed, from soup to nuts, do it all in the name of Jesus. And uh, there's two implications for us uh, in this that I want to draw and then we'll be done. And the first implication is is kind of from God's perspective, looking down on us. It's about God's claim on us. And then the second is about our claims on God. So first, doing everything in the name of Jesus. I I think it it really corrects this, this wrong idea in our culture sometimes that we can compartmentalize our lives. That there's a part of things that we do that we'll call our kind of religious activity and it doesn't affect what we do in your job. It doesn't affect how you speak to people. It doesn't affect how you spend your money. It doesn't affect how you entertain yourself. It doesn't affect where you go or what you do on your vacations. And Paul's saying that's absolutely not true. Whatever you do, nothing's off limits. Do it in the name of Jesus. He says earlier that you have been... um, You were dead, and now you've been brought to life. And that means everything has changed. Your whole life is changed. And so for us, we need to ask ourselves, is there some part of us, is there some uh, aspect of our life that's remained untouched or unchanged by the gospel? Everything, including what we say, what we do, should be governed by the consideration of what it means that we live in the kingdom of Christ, the king. Now, he's our ruler. He gets to call the shots. He's our Lord. And he gets to call the shots for us because he's given us his name. We bear his family resemblance. The fact that we've been adopted into this family means that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. And bearing the name of Christ is a big responsibility, right? There's this um, hilarious story about Alexander the Great, who was this brave you know, uh, Roman emperor who just conquered all these people and was known for his courage and his strength. And there's a story that he was sitting in his throne room, and another person named Alexander, who was a soldier, who had been kicked out of the army for his cowardice, uh, it was coming to Alexander the Great. And this this coward, Alexander the Coward, is sitting in front of the throne of Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great looks down at Alexander the Coward and he says, What's your name? And the coward says, Alexander? And Alexander the Great says, Change your conduct or change your name. Get out of here. And so for us, we bear a name. We bear the name of Christ. And that name... It's a beautiful name. It's a glorious name. It's a powerful name. And we need to bear the name of Christ with courage and with care and with thoughtfulness. Finally, the second implication of this doing everything in the name of Jesus. It's about our access to God. And uh, there's a surprising word here at the end of the verse that I think makes all the difference for us as Christians. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father and thanks to Jesus. No, it doesn't say that. Giving thanks to God the Father because of Jesus. Nope, it doesn't say that either. It says giving thanks to God the Father through him. Giving thanks to God the Father through Christ. And I think what Paul's saying here is he's reminding us of the gospel. He's reminding us that in everything we do, we do it through Christ. That Christ is our high priest. He's our mediator. Remember, the truth of the gospel is, is that our name, our reputation, our history is pretty sorry. It's pretty soiled. But Christ's name is perfect. Christ's reputation is beautiful. It's unimpeachable. And so in other religions... You approach God through your own name, through your own efforts, uh, through your own worth. You do things in your own name and you hope God listens. In Christianity, we're gathered together because we've realized our own name doesn't really have a lot going for it. Our own reputation is pretty much bankrupt before we come to Christ. But Jesus's name, it's sweet. His reputation, his record is beautiful and the good news of christianity is that when we approach the holy god of the universe when you approach him in worship when you approach him in private prayer later on in the day or throughout the week his perfect reputation covers our soiled reputation and that's the gospel and that's a truth worth singing about and and john newton who a lot of us know as the uh as the hymn writer behind amazing grace he didn't just write hymns he was a pastor and uh A lot of his hymn writing was just a byproduct of him wanting to teach the word of God to his people, to get it to dwell richly among his people, especially children. So he'd take a piece of scripture and he'd put the idea into some verses to sing so that people could remind themselves of the truth. And uh, he was reflecting on this idea that we just talked about, the idea of Jesus' name, Jesus' reputation, standing in for your junky reputation and junky name when you approach to God. And uh, he was reading Song of Solomon, verse, uh, or chapter 1, verse 3. And the verse goes, your name is like oil poured out. And so uh, John Newton wrote this hymn, which was originally called The Name of Jesus. It goes, how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, it heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. Listen to this. By thee, through thee, my prayers acceptance gain, although they're with sin they're defiled. Satan accuses me in vain, and I am owned as a child. Jesus, my shepherd, husband, friend, O prophet, priest, and king, my lord, my life, my way, my end, accept the praise I bring. And the last line, he's speaking directly to Jesus. And this is what I mean about a good song, just teaching the truth to your heart. He says, weak is the effort of my heart and cold is my warmest thought. But God, when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. Let's pray together. Father, if we're honest with ourselves, um, our warmest thoughts toward you are cold and our best efforts are weak But we're so grateful for the name of Jesus. We're so grateful for the blood of Christ that covers us and washes away our sin. We're so grateful that you would stoop down to uh, call us to be a part of this set of people called your church, called your beloved uh, bride. Father, we're reminded of uh, the words of Isaiah when he uh, entered your presence. He he said that he saw the angels singing around you as they reflected on you, and they sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Father, would you allow us to see you, to experience you, to taste your goodness so that we can uh, sing with them, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Amen.